Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. I am thrilled to have my Aussie guest on today. He is a truth hacker. He is a freedom warrior. He is the author of a phenomenal and elegantly organized and thoroughly consciousness expanding book called The Grand Illusion. It is a synthesis of science and spirituality. Brendan Murphy straight from Australia. Thank you so much for being here on the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. Anytime. Thanks, Diane. Yeah, it's great to have you. Let's jump in. First off, you wrote this book when you're in your late 20s. And it, like we were saying earlier, before we jumped on here, it's not really something many people do where they talk about the depth of reality like you go into in extraordinary detail in your 500 and something page um, book, drawing in so many different things about quantum physics, quantum theories, spirituality. So my big question to you as a jumping off point, were you always a seeker or was there something that happened in your life where you had this turning point and you just said I gotta look deeper yeah it was more of a it was more of a turning point kind of moment for sure uh so I was more I was always a little bit sort of like um I always I was leaning from you know my teens I was leaning in the direction of being kind of you know a bit out of the box a bit alternative and and that kind of thing but I didn't have my kind of full full balloon awakening until you know, I was about 20, I think roughly. And that, that came about through my brother who, who, uh, you know, he was at school one day, they had a speaker come in and give a talk and he was supposed to talk about business, but he kept talking about this book. And my brother thought that that was noteworthy. And, you know, he didn't, didn't normally come home from school with a, a book suggestion, you know, a recommendation or anything. It was just like something about it triggered something in him to tell me like I needed to know this and then sure enough I made a mental note of it but I I delayed looking into it probably for half a year until you know finally the time was right and my curiosity got the better of me and I went and checked the book out and that was it that was you know my mind was blown it showed me a, a realm of possibility that you know I'd never conceived of before and showed me my ideas about how things worked and what was real were you know ludicrously naive and <laughs> I just took it from there. You know, my curiosity was lit and you know, that was it. You were the perfect student. That's what it sounds Thank like. <laughs> because, you know, when people think they know it all, it's like, oh, you're just shutting yourself off from even more possibility because there's no way. It's like, we can't think mm-hmm. our way to God. So yeah. we have to just really allow ourselves to, no matter how much we know or don't know to be the perpetual student. So that's what I hear. And that's like a great, training ground to receive all the things that you learned about and you share. Um, you know, you talk about on your website, which I wanted to go into a bit, these three core freedoms, which I think are really timely right now with what's sort of the turning point of the planet, 
right now. And you talk about health freedom, you talk about spiritual freedom, and you talk about lifestyle and impact freedom. Um, maybe you could go into all three of those for a moment. And my question on top of that is, out of all those freedoms, which do you think is being most challenged right now in terms of humanity? Oh, <clears throat> yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a juicy one. So, <laughs> your time. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's obvious to me that the, um, our, our freedom, uh, you know, the most basic levels is, is being assaulted from, you know, virtually every possible direction. So, you know, on a personal level, on a collective level, uh, we've never, at least not, you know, anyone who was born after, say, you know, 1950 has never seen the kind of sort of fascistic assault on freedom that we're witnessing over the last sort of, say, 18 months-ish. Um, and so that that's created a really interesting um, situation. I think, you know, people, a lot of people in the sort of, I don't know, truth community, or if you can call it that, have this this idea that, you know, spirit it's a spiritual war that's going on. Um and, you know, there's an element of truth in that as well. But for the most part, we just really have a very kind of unconscious, we're, we're in a system of that's unconscious in uh, at its sort of most fundamental levels. And it's kind of like this, this, um, this demiurgic force is kind of out of control trying to maintain its unconscious, um, the state, the, the state of the, un the collective, which is unconscious predominantly and maintain that so it can maintain its own control and power um, and, you know, that plays out and is expressed through a lot of different layers of, you know, bureaucracy and, you know, the world of banking and the world of uh, the medical system and big pharma and all that sort of stuff. But it's all designed in a very unconscious kind of a way for the most part, not entirely, but mostly unconsciously designed to keep the boot, you know, stomped down on the face of humanity and or on consciousness and keep it to keep it contained and to keep as humans as unself-aware as possible. So... We've just seen the most intense, um, you know, drastic sort of uh, escalation of that that dynamic in the last year and a half um, that we've ever seen. So, yeah, it's really an invitation for us to to re-examine our basic concepts of freedom and what it means to be free. Uh, you know, what does that look like personally? Um, and I see that a lot in in the kind of activist kind of community, which I've been kind of involved in or ensconced in for years and years now. Um, particularly through social media, so for a decade. And there's a tendency in that community to, to really focus on the, um, the sort of control mechanisms and to lose sight of um, the personal level, I think. Um, what, you know, in, in terms of your personal agency, you know, what are you creating in your own life? How does it look? How do you want your life to look? Even though, you know, we're looking out into the world and going, oh, my God, there's this amazing assault on freedom and health, you know, health under attack with the new injection and all this stuff, which is all completely true. But then we lose sight of the fact that we still have agency in our personal lives and can still be creative in our personal lives. And from there, that's the only way we can create meaningful change. And we do that by, you know, working together and collaborating and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I, by the way, I should mention you have a great podcast and I've been listening to a lot of your uh, episodes and I love the one with Jason Kristoff. He's the bomb <laughs> and uh, all the questions you, you pontificate upon with him. And uh, to your point, it makes me think of a quote, I might butcher it a bit, but it's like he says with everything that we're fed to dumb us down, right. To take away these freedoms, these core freedoms, um, and he says, you know, when did they ever 
decide or when did we ever think that drinking poison like alcohol was a treat? Mm. <laughs> I just, you know, there's so much gravity to that. It's that we don't really realize that these are poisons. Coffee is a poison. Alcohol is a poison. These injections are poisons. The makers of these poisons are felons convicted, not, <laughs> not opinion. Nope. You can go look it up. They're mm -hmm. all convicted felons. Yeah. And, you know, and for people listening, look, we have choice and we'll get into that here because you do talk about that in your book. But I want to be able to make the most wise consciousness expanding choice that is going to bring me into the highest frequency because high frequency people will save the planet. Mm. And when enough people are in that high frequency collectively, then this world's going to change. That's my belief. I can't prove it because we're not there yet. <laughs> but <laughs> your point in your book, you talk about the Maharishi effect, where it only takes 1% to affect like 16% of the population's violence level, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So there's a critical threshold. There's a threshold number there somewhere. Um, and it might be the square root of 1%, which I think was what they found in their their research. And and then when you combine that work, which was completely scientific and totally empirical with stuff like the 100th monkey, which is, you know, a, an observable thing, which we see, again, there's science, science around that as well. And Rupert Sheldrake's talked about it. Um, when you look at all these different things, start pulling the puzzle pieces together, it's, it's obvious that they're, there can only like this system and the state that it's in can only last so long as more of the monkeys continue to wake up and say, hang on a minute, I, I'm not on board with this. So it might be 10% of the population. I've seen that number. That was a study that came out on um, 10 years or so, but yeah, so there's, it's not, a, it's not even a majority of people that are needed to create the um, or to push through the threshold and create that radical systemic change. So that's the, I guess, you know, silver lining to it. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about in your book, which I, it was like a factoid I didn't know. And it seems like a small thing that I pick from your book, but it stood out to me is where you talk about heresy and how heresy come actually comes from the Greek word heresis, heresis, right? And it means, right to choose. It means to have choice. It means to be able to, you know, have a, a deeper examination into things. What's mm. wrong with that? And yeah, yeah. we have burned people for heresy, as we know, <laughs> uh, Joan of Arc, <laughs> you know, yeah. many people. We, we, and we're, do, we're still doing it. We're just digitally, we digitally burn people now. You know, we deplatform them. We, we censor them. We silence them. You know, it's, it's really not a lot's changed. We still have the hysteria of the group, you know, the group mind, the hive mind, the, the emotional irrationalism, um, you know, predominantly um, embodied by the left or the far left these days. Um, and, you know, that, that, that whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, when when you reach the point where having a different viewpoint other than the one that's pushed by the establishment um, can cause you to be ostracized or you know ridiculed, deplatformed, and that kind of thing, it's you know you're in a pretty dangerous place. I mean, it's a very dangerous. The thing that the the advocates of that kind of action don't realize um, is that in that system, they too are completely expendable. 
the system has no respect for them. They're just useful idiots as far as it's concerned and they will it will use them and then chew them up and spit them out when it's ready to. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote from your book and it, you're actually quoting uh, a mother-daughter team of uh, researchers. And um, I just think it's it's worthy of mention. Successful, this is from Alice Bryan and Linda Seabock, Successful multidimensionals, which we are listeners, uh, we are multidimensional, and I'm sure people that are tuning into this podcast, my listeners are pretty well um, up to speed with that. But successful multidimensionals, you say, you quote, have simply eradicated the barriers between conscious and subconscious inputs and expanded their 5 to 15% conscious awareness factor by an untold amount. Human minds, conscious awareness, have been stuck or blocked into a quote-unquote dislearning mindset, which has short-circuited the potential of human mind functioning. Successful multidimensionals make adjustments necessary to unlock the mindset. And once free from that state of non-awareness, can access higher dimensions. Amen to that. <laughs> Halla freaking Luya. <laughs> that's a good. It's a good passage. That one. <laughs> yeah, that is a great passage. But yeah. to your point, I think that's really um, what it's all about. It's like we have to have the gumption, the wherewithal, the ability to hack our consciousness and think from that higher plane of altitude of of being elevated above the stuff so that we can actually have that pramanic sight that clear yogic sight which we all have and to your point we'll go into the pineal gland that's a really cool subject that people might want to uh, just listen to and have you talk about but how the pineal gland is a third eye. And, uh, you know, we have the ability to awaken and have clear sight beyond the illusion of the sort of muck that the third dimension uh, allows us to perceive. Do you want to go mm. a bit into that? Um, well, the third eye thing particularly? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just kind of jump in and I'm pulling, as I read your book, um, I pulled a bunch of things that really stuck out for me that I wasn't aware of. I was not aware of that the pineal gland um, has the highest relative, um, is it uh, blood flow than any other part of the body except the kidneys. Is that correct? I remember that, Pat. It's been a while since I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, I think you, yeah that's, you wrote that in your book, and that is, to me, pretty freaking fascinating mm, because yeah. where there's blood flow, there's circulation. Where there's circulation, there's life. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, and what, what, to your point, what are we doing but shutting down our consciousness with the things that we're doing to calcify the pineal gland mm. fluoride yeah, it, obvious one but what yeah, else yeah um and that was that was another thing that 
the uh, the research by Jennifer Luke, which showed that the fluoride accumulates most heavily in the pineal gland. Um, so you get these sort of salt crystals um, that you know block its its functioning. But yeah, it is it is a very interesting thing when you realise that it is biologically kind of a third eye, and the pineal is it has a lot of like hormonal functions and you know regulating our, our hormonal sort of uh, cycles and that kind of stuff, sleep patterns and melatonin and whatever. But um. Yeah, there is, there is also on a, if you like a high dimensional level, there's a, a light frequencies that are not, you know, physical photons or what we would recognize, what physicists would recognize as, you know, real light, but there's those high overtones or dimensions of light that actually do flow in to the body and into the pineal gland. So that might be a source of that, um, you know, that inner vision, that third, third eye um, awareness that, you know, we, we hear about so much of. And yeah, I mean, to damage the third eye and pollute it through, you know, acidifying foods, toxic, you know, all this synthetic stuff, it's not real, um, acid producing, you know, that's all, that's not good for any part of the body. Um, and especially not, you know, brain function and pineal and in your mind. So when you combine that with the actual mind control all around us, like we live in this matrix of mind control, which is the media and the education system and, you know, all that government and whatever. Um, it's, it's something to really, you know, the act of self-awareness to become, um, reflexively self-aware and to intentionally monitor ourselves um, and to turn our, our, you know, vision, so to speak, back on ourselves, on our own mind and say, you know, what am I doing here? What's, what am I, is this intentional? Is this behavior intentional? Am I thinking, am I actually thinking this through? Does this make sense? Like these are questions that come from uh, the prefrontal cortex, the highest brain center that we've got. Most people, which you were sort of alluding to, are not running out of the prefrontal cortex most of the time. Like most people live their lives you know, 90 plus percent in the lower parts of the brain, which are just, that's where you're running on autopilot, just on habit and habits are done unconsciously. Right. So we got this, it's like the game is rigged against us, but it's kind of rigged for us to, to kind of grow and evolve and, and become something a little bit uh, smarter and a bit tougher, a bit more streetwise and, and self-realized. So it's like, if we take the challenge on, it serves us, but if we don't, it chews us up and spits us out. <laughs> Right, right. Well, it's like, how empowered do you want to be? And that's the point. Yeah, exactly. And some people don't care, and that's okay. But they'll get what they put into their lives, so to speak. They'll get the, the, the sort of matching frequency. That actually probably is a good segue to talk about consciousness. And you go into consciousness a lot in the uh, grand illusion. Um, how consciousness, and this is a subject very close to my heart because I do biofield tuning and I'm constantly in people's fields all day long, all over the world, some in person here in LA. But, you know, at this point, I'm seeing people like you in Australia and Japan and Italy. And I have to get out of the small mind. I have to get out of the thinking uh, brain, right? And I have to step into that quantum and uh, step into the ether, step into the fourth um, reality, the um, fourth element, right, of, of plasma. And it brings me to talk about consciousness. And you say this in your book, how consciousness, very simply put, is non-local. Do you want to just explain that for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I guess in a nutshell, it just means that it doesn't have a particular location in what we think of as space or time um, or to put it another way it is everywhere uh, 
everywhere at once. It is basically, there's nowhere that you can be that it is not. As, as a ground level uh, fundamental substrate of existence of any form, it's always preceded by that field of consciousness, which has, again, no spatial properties, not, no temporal properties. It's not related to space or time as we experience them through our you know, physical sensory apparatus. So I don't know if that's helpful to people, but um, every mystic out there knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I am with you 110%. And any mystical experience I've ever had, and you can listen to it on uh, uh, YouTube or go to my website and you can check that out. But uh, that's just my own personal experience. There are thousands upon thousands of stories of mystics all over the planet that have the same experience. And like you say, the numbers don't lie. Um, but that never happens. These mystical experiences never happen by planning, by trying to create something. They're larger than us and they're larger than the physical brain. And you make a really good point in your book too. And I keep going back to your book because there's a lot that we could talk about how the brain is more of a receiver than a generator. And I love that because that's really sort of it in a nutshell. That it's like, we are in consciousness. Consciousness is within us, but like the body is in the field. It's like the energy then creates the form. And as you say in your book, it's like when uh, subtle bodies were formed first, energy bodies were formed first before the cells and all that. And uh, again, many of our listeners will get that. Some people won't, but let's talk about that consciousness, not only is it non-local, but if you're going to have a mystical experience, you kind of get to get yourself out of the way and recognize that it's all around you and you can't think your way to a mystical experience because consciousness mm -hmm. is not rigid or static or stayed or um, fixed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't be in like a, a conscious sort of say beta brainwave state. And like you said, think your way into those other states, which are, you know, theta and delta states. So <clears throat> you have to have an altered state of consciousness to experience an altered state of consciousness. You have to have a different brainwave state to, to actually be able to experience that, that kind of different reality. Um, and you would know, Diane, from your work with the biofield that um, another way that might help people to grasp uh, the, the mind or the consciousness thing in a slightly more tangible way is that the auric field, as far as I'm concerned, the auric field is the mind field um, to speak generally. So there are different layers of that field, as you know, but um, to, to simplify the subject for people, all those layers, like what we call the auric field is literally the mind field. So the body is ensconced by the mind. It is, it exists within a field of the mind. And if you switch the body off, if you switch the brain off, then which, which we have, you know, uh, I mean, I go way into that in book two, particularly um, with near death experiences and, and that kind of stuff. But if you switch it off, then you, you have no other choice, but to experience reality through those, those other levels of the mind. And so you're not sensing reality through a, a physical body anymore. So you're not tuned or resonant with the body. You're not in phase with it anymore. Now you're in phase with a slightly different order of reality. And that's all we, that's all we can ever really do. It's like we're, we're in one, we're either tuned to one reality or tuned to another reality or tuned to the body reality. 
Um, but that's all mind. It's all just different um, experiences of psyche. Right. Right. Have you ever had a mystical experience? Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, what was your first mystical experience? Do you remember? Yeah, it wasn't long after I read that um, that book that, that I was telling you blew my mind. So um, that that mind-opening process of the, the, the book created for me actually allowed me to have uh, mystical, mystical experiences. And the first one I had was completely spontaneous. Um, and that, you know, I wrote about that, I think in, I don't know, maybe chapter five or something. Um, and I was just, I was just lying in bed one night and just drifting off to sleep. And then the next thing I know, I'm boom, I'm, I'm infinity. That's all I can, all I can tell you is I was infinite. And at the same time as being a, an infinite field of awareness, I still had a point of, uh, like a point of awareness within that that was still me. So it was kind of an interesting, that kind of paradox. But um, from there, I, you know, I took up meditation for a couple of years and then I had some very uh, much deeper kinds of um, mystical experiences that were more sustained and more controlled um, as I got used to being in that kind of state. So, yeah, it's 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 a very interesting thing. Um, and I haven't meditated for a long time because I'm, really, I'm not really drawn to it anymore i'm not really motivated by those types of experiences at least at this point so what were your more sustained mystical experiences what did that entail kind of a similar thing but it was it was connected to my body i was i was able to have the experience that expanded sort of inf infinite uh, experience through my physicality and what i was able to sense through that was I mean, I could feel galaxies inside of me, um, you know, like in a kind of tangible way. And I know that sounds ludicrous, but, you know, it's sort of like the, the information of these these other galaxies out there flowing through you. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to describe that kind of thing. Yeah, it is because it's so beyond words. And I get that. It's like anyone that's ever had an NDE and I can test to that with people just coming on my podcast and it's always the same deal. It's like, I can't even explain it. And mm. there are no words to ultimately describe it. It's like the, it's like the Tao, the num moment you put a name on it or you call it something, you've lost it. Yeah. Yeah. And in your book, you also talk about how, um, which I think is really important and to the mystical experience of even having a hard time to describe that, that, um, you know, we are constantly, our perception is always being edited by the mind. So it's like Krishnamurti said, it's like the moment there is an I between the observer and the observed, there's separation, there's division. And as long as there's division, you won't really get the truth. So it's like the moment you try to describe it, it's the I describing the one that's, mm. the, that's infinity. And it's kind of like a, um, you're already in a lie. <laughs> so, yeah. so I get that. I get that. Have you experienced your Kundalini awakening? I guess um, not in like a full on, oh, you know, like feeling feeling that, you know, heat going up the spine kind of thing. Um, I've had people who've worked with me with the sound stuff, like the Regenetics Method, um, you know, Soul's work, uh, yeah. who have had that kind of thing. Um, my partner, Amy, when she, when I did it for her, you know, she had the classic um, symptoms like almost spiraling up around her spine, up her back. Um, and it was like, yeah, it was like the move, the, as the energy was going up, she would get, it would like hit blockages or whatever. And it would, she would have some discomfort there and then it would move through and it was up either side of the spine. It was like classic Kundalini symptoms. So some people have it really tangibly in my case, um, you know, not so much. 
Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was before you even got here and then it just was like, okay, I don't need that. (laughs) I I think you never know. I don't know. It's such a personal thing. it, It is such a personal thing and it's kind of a, you know, I've never really asked anybody that question, but it just felt sort of organic to ask you that as we were talking mm. about high school experiences. Because sometimes mm. that is a, a touchstone point for people. It's like, well, once I experienced Kundalini, then I knew this was that. Yeah. I, I experienced my Kundalini. <laughs> You'd think, you know, I've been to India a bunch of times. I've had these incredible spiritual teachers or gurus or masters, whatever you want to call them. And, uh, and there's something different to each person. But uh, you think it's always going to be something like that. I'm in a temple. I'm doing the Kriya. You know? And it's like I was at a yoga workshop with John Friend. He doesn't even know this story. And uh, back when this form of yoga that he was teaching was very popular, and then it all kind of went to shit. But, well, there's still people doing it. But when he was the leader of the, the sort of organization, I thought he was a phenomenal teacher. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, but I was in a room with about, I don't know, 300 people. And I thought he was walking around with a feather, like a peacock feather. I know. And just putting it on people's spines and just kind of brushing it ever so lightly up and down people's spines. So we're doing a meditation and I start feeling like this water rippling up and down my spine. And I'm like, oh, that's him. Like rubbing a peacock feather. I, he wasn't walking around with a peacock feather. <laughs> but for some reason, I thought, ah, you know, he's got a feather. <laughs> and uh, no, I opened my eyes after a couple minutes of experiencing this, which was pretty profound. And um, he's over on the other side of the gymnasium and uh, doing his thing. So that's but, it. Like, you know, that, that feeling of a feather being, you know, just tickling your back or, you know, you might get like a tingling sensation up your, on your skin, that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, you're talking about like that, that bioelectricity being activated and, and that, that can feel like a million different things. So, you know, I've had those types of things, but if you wanted to like narrow it down to a really rigid kind of like, this is what Kundalini feels like, you know, the heat going up the spine, well, maybe not that side of it, but other, other variations on the theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's a probably just like we're infinite. There's infinite possibilities on the theme. It doesn't have to necessarily perhaps happen through the Sushumna, that cord mm. in the spine. Mm. You know, uh, it makes me think in your book, you talk about many mystics know about the silver cord that originates from the pineal gland and it connects you to the higher dimensional realities or to the heavens or whatever you want to call it. Well, in my teaching, we know it as the golden thread, just another name for a different thing. So you just see Mm. that things, it's like the game telephone. So just from a simple example like that, there is an infinite possibility of possibilities of spiritual awakening experiences and it doesn't have to look like again kundalini rising going up the spine it could be through a near-death experience it could be just from falling in love it Mm. could be from a myriad of different sort of um things that act like a spiritual tuning fork you know yeah yeah um in your book you talk a lot about these, these quantum theories, uh, string theory, um, the bell theorem, which I thought was really cool. 
um, scalar technology, and so many others that I probably can't even remember or pronounce at the time, right, right now. But out of all these theories, out of all these quantum sort of principles, which one just fascinates you or excites you the most right now as far as where we're going? As far as where we're going in how it can help us heal or transform humanity again or mm. bring us into a new world or a new earth? That's a really, that's a really interesting question. So, you know, ignoring the fact that I'm pretty rusty, um, <laughs> okay. I think... I think the basic thing, the basic teaching through down through the ages has always been the, the fundamental interconnectedness of, of everything. And that's what the quantum mechanics discussion, that's what quantum theory has basically led us back to, is that ancient truth, which is we're all in this system interconnected with one another. We are part of the same system. There's no, there is no separation. There are no islands. There are no islands in a plasma universe, as they say. And so you know, we've got this kind of like energetic ecology that we're all in, which we have a, a sort of responsibility to um, collectively like to each other. Um, and that has nothing to do with the kind of mentality that, you know, makes people believe delusional things like you need to inject yourself with poison. So I'll be safe. Um, I'm talking about, you know, the, the simple basic truth that in a system of energy, it's either more coherent or less coherent. Um, and that interconnectedness, we can use to choose to make it more coherent if we, if we want to um, and feed, you know, feed our intention into in that direction um, and create, you know, that coherence creates conditions that most sane people would, would say are an improvement on, on things, you know, whether it's, you know, simply feeling more calm or more serene or, you know, like the Maharishi experiments showed a decrease in crime by just a small group of people meditating in that area. Um, so, you know, that to me is, is a fundamental place to start, which I mean, circles back to the whole discussion on what's that critical sort of threshold in creating that irreversible change, that state change in the system, but that's it. You know, we, we can do some very interesting things we can push things in a, in a direction that works for us, knowing full well that we are being manipulated and there is a frequency war going on where they're trying to keep us in those, those low frequency states to maintain the chaos and maintain the fear. Um, and we get to choose to, you know, step, step out of that. Yeah. What do you say to people who think they're not being manipulated? I mean, maybe nothing, but. <laughs> yeah, generally nothing. <laughs> it's, the thing with people who, I mean, anyone who thinks they're not being manipulated is someone in my experience who has also not learned how to listen Mm -hmm. Um, and that those things generally go together. So when you have someone who thinks the, the thing is right, the mind control system that we are born into is designed to make us think that we're not being mind controlled. So you, you've got, you've got a few different things to contend with. You've got the fact that people are deluded that they're not being mind controlled. Then it's, they're being intentionally dumbed down. They're not being taught how to think critically. They're not being taught how to listen and then you go and try, you want to try and tell that person, hey, you're being manipulated. It just doesn't work. <laughs> right, right. And then you get to be an adult and things happen in the world like uh, a virus or a shutdown or whatever you want to call it. But we'll shut down all the grocery stores and the businesses. But hey, we'll keep the liquor stores open 
mm-hmm. and the weed stores open. And uh, yeah, we'll just in a coffee shop. So we got to keep the Starbucks open. And then we can just blow out everybody's limbic systems so they can just be totally in their fight or flight and fear and just keep plugging them with the story that is the narrative. And uh, I don't need to go into what the narrative is. You, you, everybody's got a TV. Most people have a TV, unfortunately. Fortunately, yeah. like baseball. Oh, or an internet connection, and then you've got the best news possible. You know exactly what's going on. Um, right, yeah. right. So you're right. You're right. I mean, that's the, the system is it's quite ingenious what they've what they've set up. I mean, because, yes. you know, once people are in fear, like you're describing, um, you can't give them information you can't give them a new perspective you can't reason with someone who's in fear because they just need to be their subconscious is screaming at them stick with the bigger herd stay with the pack you know because if you don't if you have a different thought you'll be the the one the lone um stag or whatever that gets pounced on by the lion that's you know what's happening in there that's neurologically they just you can't work with that so what we have to do when we have the like when the situation starts to calm a bit like it has in certain places um, and I don't mean a pandemic coming. I mean the simple propaganda and the the emotional um, chaos. When that starts to calm a bit and people come back into their bodies and start, you know, being functioning a bit more normally, then you can reason a little bit or you can start dropping little seeds and planting seeds and sharing some information here, asking them a question that you know they don't have the answer to but that it might start opening their mind in a certain direction. And then that's our opportunity to actually make some headway while things are a little bit calmer because when they ramp it up, you you just you just can't kind of got to duck for cover and hope that the zombie masses don't take you out. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know, truth is crazier than fiction for sure. You know. Yeah, it's so bizarre. We live in such an interesting reality, and it's. I'm glad I'm. I'm glad I'm aware of it because it makes life really interesting. You know, and I'd rather be here and knowing about the whole shit show circus that's going on to not know about it and live in the fantasy. Right. And I would argue, you know, about it, you're conscious, you're clear, you're aware, you know what you know, so that you can be one of the light workers that can help to create this, this, um, you know, this Maharishi effect, this energetic momentum that can start to spread and shift humanity. Yeah. I do think the new earth is coming and they can say, oh, there's like the new world order, but there's also in a spiritual context, the new earth. And, you know, you talk about in your book how the pineal gland has, you know, I think it's like 30 to 300 uh, crystals, micro crystals and more crystals than I think any other part of the body. It's this, it it picks up these piezoelectric charges. It it reacts to electromagnetic signaling. So we can feel, we can intuit, we can use our higher mind to sort of um, uh, precognize um, our future, right? Um, mm. I'm losing my train of thought here. Oh, shoot. I had a really good point. Oh, it'll, come, it'll, it'll, it'll come back to me. But... Um, yeah, I mean, we'll come back to it, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw in this to the mix because when I was asking you the sort of leading question, which is what is the most important um, principle of the quantum that you think is going to really help humanity or 
we need right now or is really getting you up out of your chair and excited. And you answered beautifully. For me, when I read your book, I really sat with this quote from, um, that has to do with non-locality. And, and uh, this is from two researchers or scientists named Kuttner and Rosenblum. And I'm just gonna read it for people to listen to as they're driving in their car or drinking their non-caffeinated herbal tea so that they can calm down and receive. <laughs> my tone of my podcast is ever-evolving, Brendan. <laughs> Here we go. Quote, in principle, any two objects that have ever interacted are forever entangled. The behavior of one instantaneously influences the other. An entanglement exists even if the interaction is through each of the objects having interacted with a third object. In principle, our world has a universal connectedness. And when we talk about Bell's theorem, this was labeled the most profound discovery, quote unquote, in science by physicist Henry Stapp. I would agree with that, that we are all connected. So ah, maybe this brings me back to what I was saying, is that you know what you know so that you can serve this primordial web of humanity to bring us into a more elevated connectedness. I like that. I like that. And I think that's what we're, <laughs> we're, we're all doing, right? All of us who are doing this kind of work, you know, whether it's biofield tuning or, you know, writing your book, you know, it's all contributing to an elevated awareness, which, which would actually result if, you know, when you hit the critical mass, it will result in a very different state of living for us or the possibility of a very different and very elevated state of, of living. Yeah. What's the book you're working on right now? I'm just finishing the second half of the grand illusion. So it's book two, part two. And where, where are we going with that one? Well, it's basically a logical continuation of where I left off with book one. Um, just very deep, the very deep dive into um, the near death stuff, the out of body stuff, um, that kind of, you know, with, with book one, I kind of kept one foot in, in uh, the third dimension, if you like. And, you know, the other foot was out of it. Whereas in book two, it's like both feet are out out very definitely and we're sort of exploring the other layers of reality where we inhabit you know the other layers of the afterlife what's possible you know the different perspectives on uh, reincarnation and the research around that um alien our alien selves other versions of ourselves that exist on different dimensions and this kind of stuff so um the thing i i really try to do is is look at it in a way and write about it in a way that um transcends the the limitations that most writers, most authors in these subjects are, are, you know, kind of adhering to without necessarily even being aware that they, they are being limited um, and to, to transcend those blind spots and really put things together in a bit of a different way. So I take, I like to take a more meta approach to things um, in general. And then you can see, you know, it's like, well, if you have a 40,000 foot view of something, you can see things that you can't see if you're stuck down on the ground, you know? For sure. Well, in your first book, you give a lot of great 
anecdotal evidence and reference points and so much that it's kind of like you, you, you really do a great job for, I would imagine for someone who has some doubt to eradicate as much doubt as possible. And you do a brilliant job with that. You know, with, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, with near death experiences, have you ever had a near death experience yourself? Uh, not yet. No, not, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Are you looking forward to it? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, from all accounts, it's the most amazing thing that ever happens to anyone. So, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's evidently there's nothing to actually be worried about. Um, I've read it. Hard. Sorry. So, definitely the most beautiful thing that's ever happened from at least what I've learned talking to people. But the common thread is, too, that it's the most difficult integration, reintegration, because yeah. it's like forever they now have one foot here and one foot there, and they really have a hard time integrating here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a long process. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been written about quite a lot. So I do, I do talk about that more in, in book two and, and the parallels between those people who have the near-death experience uh, versus people who have like a shamanic uh, initiation experience of something of, na- of that nature and the people who have... Uh, for want of a better word, like abduction experiences, alien contact, you know, close encounters of the fifth, fifth kind. Um, and the aftermath of all of those types of experiences is very, very, very similar. Uh, regardless of the differences in the, in the nature of the moment of the experience, what happens to people afterwards is, you know, a very long period of integration. They have a very different uh, perspective on, on life and the meaning of life and, and what awaits us, you know, on the other side of the veil and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, very, it's a really interesting topic. There's a lot there. The people that you talk about in your book that have these alien experiences, is there a particular race or breed of, of beings or multidimensional, higher dimensional beings that people refer to? In that world, there are a number of, the, of beings that show up repeatedly, um, yeah, that get referenced repeatedly. So the, the interesting thing about that is I think a lot of those types of experiences are more, they're not well understood on, in general. I'll say that in general. I'm probably, probably going to piss a lot of people off with this, but a lot of what happens in people's experiences in that realm, they tend to be more visionary types of experiences and they, they're different to the, what a near-death experience is. It's like, and I, I was just having this conversation with a, a friend of mine, uh, Nick, who's also a writer um, and very, 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 very knowledgeable, very smart dude. And he's noticed the same thing, which is the near-death experiences seem to be taking people into the, if you, if you want to call it the collective unconscious um, or if you want to call it, you know, the spirit world, whatever terminology you want to employ, um, and it's sort of like a, a real insight into the actual nature of what's on the other side of the veil kind of thing. Um, whereas a lot of the the visionary experiences and people having, you know, contact with what they are experiencing as aliens and what, what have you, that, that tends to be uh, more of a, like a, it's like, if NDEs give you an insight into the mind and the brain of what's really going on under the surface, the, the other side of the equation is giving you an insight into the dreams, the dreamscape and the fantasies of the collective. So it's like mm. there's a real kind of, there's a v- very kind of interesting dichotomy between the two and those two worlds generally don't meet. There's actually, they don't, there's quite a few contradictions there between them. And it's quite a, it's a huge thing to try and look at 
the from a from a higher vantage point and go, how does this fit together? Does it fit together? Um, and so I think there's often a lot of misunderstanding around the nature of those contact experiences because the I just think that they're inherently difficult to pin down, and they don't always what ha- what seems to be happening on the surface level isn't necessarily what's actually going on, even though it might be a very powerful experience. And, and you know, it's a valid experience. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, pulling back and interpreting things from a, that 40,000 foot place, you know? Right. I t- totally get that. Yeah. And if you're interpreting, trying to interpret um, an experience that is just from another dimension, and you're trying to interpret using the laws of physics in this dimension, in this body, I can only imagine sort of like the difficulty I would imagine with that kind of download. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And there's, there was a great, there's a great book, um, a channeled book called uh, Seth Speaks. Oh, and right. it was channeled. Yeah. You, you would know about it for sure. Um, and Jane Roberts channeled it. And he, Seth, the Seth intelligence or entity makes uh, the point with this kind of stuff, talking about these kinds of experiences where, in, in terms of what we would call like an alien consciousness, um, trying with with that or other other dimensional consciousness, trying to then come into our reality to interact with us, they have to take on a sort of camouflage in a sense because their natural form is not something that exists here. And right. then we, by the same token, we have to meet them, if you like, halfway. And so we end up in a place that is neither here nor there and it's kind of a beyond that doesn't belong anywhere. Mm. And it doesn't fit any of our established categories. So, so it's a very, it's a really sort of nuanced kind of a exploration and discussion to have. Um, Trying try to pin that stuff down is is really messy. And I think a lot of what we see, um, definitely what we, a lot of what we see in that that realm, is a lot of cultural stuff like pop culture, um, you know, figures from movies, TV shows, this kind of stuff, they start showing up in these experiences and you go, oh, I can see where that came from. You know, it's like you sourced that. But the collective mind, the collective unconscious uses that kind of symbolism and these these figures and images um, as part of its evolving kind of storyline of, of what's going on. But it's more of, a, it's more of a, a dreamscape fantasy world than an actual this is how it is kind of on the other side of the veil. And, and it's really, it's teasing that stuff apart, separating them out and going, okay, this is the real deal. This is kind of that, that, that Star Wars kind of astral Star Wars fantasy world, which has been evolving. It's been changing and, and developing over the decades. And you can see it in the books that these people who've had the visionary kind of experiences with these other intelligences, they keep evolving the storyline. And it's like, oh, you can kind of, if you pull back and read enough of it, you can sort of see it unfolding and, and it gets more in, intricate and more, more characters show up and um, the storyline gets more, the plot line gets more and more convoluted and, and sophisticated, but it's still most of what's going on is, is you know, might piss people off, but most of it is actually nonsense. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. Uh, you know, I, I had a healing with a woman some years ago, and um, and this was before I even knew about these particular beings that have been written about by many people. But I had never experienced this. I'd never heard of it. I never it was never in my conscious awareness or knowledge. And um, I was having healing, and all of a sudden, this massive. Uh, praying mantis like surgeon comes in and he's just like you know and he's just pulling out some stuff and sewing me up and 
it was it was like a I, I had a sensorial experience where I could feel almost like it was a tolerable. It wasn't painful, but it was like a tolerable sensorial um, feeling of like a burning, almost like a laser that didn't have pain. Um, and and I felt myself being sewed up. And this guy had to be, I don't know, 12, 10 feet tall. And he was huge. And so, of course, in my mind, I'm going, okay, I'm having this experience of this praying mantis with these incredible, incredible sort of skilled hands that are fingers, whatever they were moving at like light speed and totally loving. But if you looked at this from going with that collective unconscious, like you're talking about, which I don't even know if that's out there in the collective unconscious as I don't, you know, I never knew about these, right? The, man, the mantis is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know people have had these experiences, but growing up, I never knew about these praying mantises. And if mm -hmm. I looked at it just from sort of my um, basic self level brain stuff, I'd be terrified. But mm -hmm. I was in this state of being completely, um, sort of suspended in a, in a, in a higher awareness. And it was absolute divine love in action, doing a service to whatever he was doing to my body or my field or who knows it's, what matrix. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's very, you know, what you're describing is like classic shamanic material. Um, yeah. And I talk about this a lot in, in book two, because it's so, it's so interesting to me that people have that kind of experience, like exactly what you just described. And if you go back, you know, millennia into the shamanic traditions around the world, like the Australian Australian originals, you know, when they had their initiation, initiations, they would be taken to or they would venture into this other world, like the sky world, um, you know, and they would be, they would have the sometimes it would be acted out by the the medicine men in 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 the flesh but other times they would they would ritually insert um crystals into their bodies they would perform this so-called surgery on them um and that might be you know the the witch doctor so to speak doing it there in the flesh but also they would venture out into the you know astral whatever you want to call it and they would have that experience out of body and they would have crystals put in them they'd be opened up have their innards replaced by magical you know power uh stones like crystals and yeah. That's exactly the kind of thing that has been going on for millennia. And it's still happening to people like you just described your own experience in the, I guess, 21st century. Yeah. Um, Two years ago. It's still going on. So there's something really, really interesting. And it, I don't, as far as I can tell, at least as from the material I've seen, um, it didn't used to be that it was done by, uh, say, praying mantis type beings. It was, you know, another kind of being, it might've been the, the medicine man. It might've been uh, the sky God figure. You know, the, we talk about the man, the, the bearded man on the cloud that, you know, the Christians um, <laughs> that inhabits the Christian psyche, but that concept itself can be traced back thousands of years to the Australian originals, for example. I mean, it's, there's nothing really new under the sun. It's, it's a really interesting thing to start pulling, pulling on these threads. And, you know, like Jacques Vallée did massive research into the contact phenomenon and the UFO phenomenon. And he found that, you know, what, what's going on is, is like the, the fairies, that what we used to experience as fairies or nature spirits and this kind of stuff, it, those experiences are still happening, but they happen in a different guise, a different form now. Um, and so we're having contact with little grey aliens or reptilians or, 
mantis beings and very similar types of experiences on the surface level. Some things have changed, but um, the transformational shamanic aspects have, have stuck around for sure. Yeah. And it seems like now I could be wrong. It seems like now more and more people are actually having um, contact experiences. Mm. And I don't think it's just because we have the internet. I mean, the internet's been around for a while, but it seems like, more and more people are having experiences. I remember my son's 11, when he was about three, there was a huge, I'm talking like um, Space Odyssey 2001, huge uh, UFO in LA, in Los Angeles, like kind of over the city, like I live in the Valley. So it's like in the Valley sort of freeway. I mean, it was, it was, this, it had to be the size of like six football fields or something. It was massive. And you see the lights going around. People are driving. I had him in the car seat cause he couldn't sleep. So we would go on drives and we're in a, going on a drive. And he said, not me. I didn't even see it. Cause I'm thinking, Oh, there's a car accident because people are driving like 10, five miles an hour on the freeway. And he says, mommy, look at the spaceship. (laughs) What? And people are literally pulling over, getting out of their car and taking pictures. And my friend calls me and he's like, do you see it? And I said, yeah, this thing. It's it's like you're in in your own live living dream. But my three-year-old at the time, he had enough that he had that cognition to go, uh, this is not what I've seen before. And mm. this is otherworldly. You know? yeah. Might add to your point of your new book, you're talking about past lives. He, um, and you being Australian, interesting. Um, he, he talked a lot about his past life growing up in Australia. And he went through a period where he was missing his parents and, um, and I would say, well, what's your dad's name again? He'd say, I'd get really upset. He'd say, I told you it's fury. I would try to look up these, uh, his mother was Mary and his father was fury, fury. <laughs> and he'd say it with a sort of like his best Australian accent. It was really adorable. <laughs> and he talked about that lifetime in detail and how he was an alcoholic and he took himself out. <laughs> wow. And this is at four years old. And he talked about before that, about being in New York City and being a fireman. And we would go to the fire stations because he was, of course, every little boy's into fire trucks. And he could get under the fire truck and he would point out and name all these parts. And the fire chief would say, did you teach him that? And I said, (laughs) no. I don't even know what he's talking about. I don't even know what the axle is. (laughs) And he could describe parts of a fire engine that I didn't even know existed. So two really cool experiences Mm -hmm. to kind of throw in the mix. You can't, you can't argue. You can't argue with that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that out there. It's, there's definitely, there's definitely a very strong case for, um, if not a linear, like reincarnational process, um, a parallel, you know, incarnational process where we, we live all these lives simultaneously, but then it looks like to each individual life in their reference frame, 
it looks like it's a, a serial thing one after the other. But um, from a higher dimensional viewpoint, it's like all happening at once. But it's either way, no matter which way you slice it, it's def- definitely something very, very interesting going on for sure. Yeah. I'm thinking in some life I'm living in like on the most amazing island where I'm just kind of like body surfing, kind of gliding with my feet and I don't need a surfboard and I'm just kind of eating sun, sunlight. (laughs) (laughs) That That tastes delicious, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Tastes like strawberries. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm all for that. Well, Brendan Murphy, you are a delight. Thank you for just going on this spiritual jog with me and answering all these questions and more. Can you tell us a bit about what you're up to and other than this second book that you're writing, uh, what yeah. are you in Australia and how people can find you? Well, they can, uh, they can find me through Truth Network, which we, we created a Truth, uh, sorry, a Facebook alternative called Truth, T-R-O-O-T-H. When we got censored, our page was taken down in June 2018. So, you know, the writing was on the wall at that point. So people can find me there at Truth Network or um, my podcast is truthiverse.com, um, spelled T-R-U-T-H-I-V-E-R-S, um, or brendandmurphy.com. I'm on all the socials like, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all the usual stuff as well. So you can look, look me up there. Um, yeah, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> I will say it's Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N, right? Yes, that's, that's right. <laughs> e. um, awesome. Well, thanks a million. And uh, when I make my way to Australia, you know I'm going to look you up. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're going to hang out. Perfect. Are you, are you <laughs> surf? Sorry? Do you surf? I I have done it once before, so you know we can we hey, can give it a crack. <laughs> I'm I'm up for that. Hey, you know, once is better than none. You've, yeah, you've right. been on a board. It's a, it's enough. <laughs> it's enough. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brendan, and uh, I'll see you around the bend. All right. Thanks, Diane. I've enjoyed it. We'll chat soon. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.